Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Welcome to Upfront with John Hartson and me, Sam Matterface. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine as we find out what it takes to be a top flight striker. It's Hartson again! Oh, it's a fantastic strike by John Hartson. We'll discuss their career-defining goals, what it's like to play for some of the biggest clubs and the feeling of scoring in a European Cup final. And it's in for the equaliser! John Hartson, I think, has got it. You're listening to Upfront with John Hartson and me, Sam Adderface, on TalkSport. Today's guest is a courageous Welshman who sprung up at Kenilworth Road, played for managers like Arsene Wenger, Harry Redknapp, Martin O'Neill, represented West Ham, Wimbledon and Celtic, amongst others. He scored 203 goals in 497 club games and 14 goals for his country. He's a scorer in a European Cup Winners' Cup final, a three-time title winner in Scotland and a three-time Welsh Footballer of the Year when Ryan Giggs was in his pomp. Yes, he was that good. Ladies and gentlemen, it is John Hartson. Hello. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, how would you describe the type of centre-forward you started out as and then the role you ended up playing towards the end of your career? I probably started out, Sam, probably a little bit raw, very aggressive. I had a decent touch. You know, I, I could play on the floor. I was an aggressive header of the ball. And I was a goal scorer, you know, all through my career. I think, you know, over 200 goals in that amount of games. Wherever I went, I managed to score goals. So, um, you know, raw, bit naive, obviously had a lot to learn. And, um, you know, very, very probably overly aggressive, really, which, which I tempered that as, as the years went on. What made you want to be a striker? I was always a striker. My dad played at a, a reasonable level in, in the Welsh leagues. My dad played for clubs like um, Aberavon, uh, Ammonford, Portal, but Avonlaido, Llanelli. He had quite a good career in the uh, in the Welsh league, which was obviously a, a very tough league in an era in the 70s and 80s where you know, elbows were flying and everything else. And, you know, my dad, would, would he was like that. You know, he was he was a quite aggressive footballer himself. So I took my gene from my dad. And it was always it was always about goals. Um, you know, my dad would take me down the local park and swing in crosses. My brother would go in goal. We'd put down a couple of jumpers, as they say, you know, as, as goal posts. And I would spring up and head the ball at 9, 10, 11 years of age. And, you know, there, there was something there. You know, my dad always said that the way that you just... When he threw the ball towards me as a young boy, it didn't just hit off my head. I'd almost arc my neck back. And, you know, I had that particular technique and it's the goals. It's it's the pleasure of scoring goals. You know, you, you just can't beat the feeling of scoring a goal. And I, I always scored goals throughout my youth, and it was just the pleasure, I think, of of being the striker. But I couldn't really see myself as a centre half. I'd probably be sent off thirty times a season if that was the case. But um, I didn't have the engine. I didn't have the um, you know the fitness maybe to play and get up and down the pitch and things like that. So. I just ended up sort of, I wanted to sort of master the art of, of just being a number nine and play within the width of that 18-yard box. 
let's warm you up with a couple of quick fire questions. We do this. We have been doing this over the course of the series. Just quick sort of instantaneous answers to sort of get a flavour of who John Hartson is and what sort of career you felt you had. What was your favourite goal? My favourite goal, well, I scored a peach against Liverpool at Anfield in the quarter-final of the UEFA Cup um, for Celtic. We were one all from the first leg at Celtic Park. Henrik Larsson and Emil Heskey had scored at Celtic Park. So we go to Anfield the following Thursday. We know that we've got to score, otherwise we're out, because they've got the away, the away goal. And I, I get the second goal, which wraps up the game, really. And it was about a 30-yard. I played a 1-2 with, with, with the magical Henrik Larsson around uh, Sammy Hippier, I think it was. And it was about 28, 30 yards out at Anfield, the club I supported as, as a child. And I still look out for Liverpool results. Now, mainly because of Ian Rush. He was my icon. He was my idol growing up in Wales. And, and I just smashed it in. Hartson, the 1-2 with Larsson. John Hartson lays up the shot! I've got to say, you know, I, I scored many of, of, of good goals, uh, but if I'm going to go back to a favourite, what it meant against Liverpool at Anfield, not many teams go there under the lights in Europe and win. As you know, they're a phenomenal. They just get it done in Europe. You know, six, six European Cups now for Liverpool. They're just over the years, it's very difficult under the lights to go and win at Anfield midweek. But we we were outstanding that night. And I remember coming off the pitch and the Liverpool fans stayed in behind and clapped us off. We, we played ever so well. Who was your favourite strike partner? Because you had one or two big names, didn't you? You played mm. with Burkham at Arsenal. You played with Larson at Celtic. Is it, you played with Paul Kitson at West Ham United. Who was your favourite? Well, again, I, I, there's so many. There's so many. And I, I played with Kerry Dixon in my in my early uh, days at Luton. Kerry came. David David Pleat thought he'd come and, you know, bring in that experience as well. Kerry was a fantastic player for Chelsea. Scored, you know, I think it was over 200 goals. Ian Wright was phenomenal. Bergkamp, Paul Kitson, we, 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 you know, we formed a great partnership. For some reason, it just clicked at West Ham when... When, when the team needed goals. Hung up towards Hartson, unlucky! Kitson, yes! Paul Kitson gets the West Ham equaliser. We were really, you know, down there, fighting relegation, but my, me and Paul, we just, uh, we never particularly worked on anything on the training ground. It, it was just one of those where we went on the pitch and it just worked for some whatever reason. Whenever I flicked the ball on, Kits would be there. Whenever he took a full back on and, and whipped it across a near post, I'd find myself making that run. And we, we just, I don't know how you do it really. It was like, it was almost like telepathic, you know. I think we scored 13 goals in the last six or seven games between us. And um, and ultimately, you know, we them goals kept West Ham up. Um, but in terms of my favourite strike partner, I probably would have to say Henrik Larsson. Larsson, always oh, in! Henrik Larsson! Henrik was a phenomenon. Um, I think he's got 242 goals in 315 games. And people can question, well, a lot of those goals came in the, in the Scottish League, but he ended up going to Manchester United. Then he went on to Barcelona, won a Champions League winner's medal with Barcelona. He broke all records for his country. And he's played in three World Cups, um, Celtic's record European goal scorer, and, and he had a bit of everything. I loved playing with them all. Craig Bellamy... Leon Dublin I played with at Celtic and Mustafa Hadji I played with as well at Coventry he was a wonder player, the Moroccan but my favourite I would probably have to say Larson because he was just so special but of course you look at Bergkamp and Ian Wright you know, both world class players and Craig Bellamy was, was fantastic as well what a player Bellas was that's easy to compliment everybody isn't it who you're mm. playing with and to say yeah I like playing with them <laughs> who did you hate playing against? Do you know there was what? one player that you used no, to sit there and go, oh, I don't want to come up against him, or not him this no, weekend. Nobody, nobody, that. nobody. Honest to God, nobody. I, I loved the challenge. I loved the challenge, and I loved it, you know, going up against Razor Ruddock. And, you know, back then, you know, we, we could we could almost work with the referees. The referees were great, you know, and I'd say, any chance, ref, come on, you give them that, you give them a foul against me then, and the referee would go, John, hold on a minute, I'll give you the next one. Fallen kindly for Hughes. Now it's with Hartson. And that's a terrific goal. Whoa, John Hartson. 
You grew up in Swansea uh, in the early 80s. How did you end up at Luton? Um, there was a scout in Wales called Cyril Beach. The two brothers, Cyril and Gilbert, they both played for Swansea City. And um, Cyril spotted me at 10 years of age, just playing in local football for my for my club. And uh, he invited me up to go and uh, have a week at Luton in, in the school holidays, you know, the Easter holidays and things like that. I'd go up on the train and my dad would put me on the train at Swansea and then Mark Pembridge... Uh, Kerry Hughes, Jason Reese, Kurt Nogan, these guys, uh, Welsh boys, all from the Ronda Valley, one or two from Cardiff, and they would almost look up, look after me all the way up to Luton on the train. You'd stay in digs, and then you train, and then you progress, and then you know at, at fourteen, fifteen, I was invited. Uh, I was offered an apprenticeship, you know, a certificate come through the house. We'd like to give John uh, a YTS. At sixteen, uh, and that's that's where I started. But I, it was just a scout really that spotted me—a Luton Town scout, locally to Wales. So Luton was brilliant; it was fantastic for me. Did you uh, did you get in trouble early on when you were a teenager at uh, Luton Town? Were you a were you a difficult mm-hmm. young lad to to manage? Were you someone who conformed to the rules, or did you did you act out occasionally? No, well, I was I was a little bit of a rascal. I was from Swansea or from a council estate, like a lot of us, and you know I probably didn't know how to behave myself at times and things like that. But you know I think when you get older, you get a bit wiser, and and sometimes you know at Luton I was called into the office, you know, for bits and bobs, one or two things. I went to a casino one night. I was sixteen, seventeen. I shouldn't have been in there. Uh, I was gambling How did you heavy. you get into that at 16? Well, I was just gambling heavy. I always, you know, I liked the, the fruit machines and everything else, and I had a bit of an addiction. I'm nine years clean now. I've not had a single bet for nine years. Was that where it started then? Uh, it started as a kid. Uh, I was I was glass collecting in a social club in Swansea with a few of my mates, and there used to be these uh, one-arm fruit machines, bandits, you called them, and... Um, when I was working, I was collecting the glasses around the social club and then somebody would get eight or nine nudges on the fruit machines and they'd call for me because I'd almost mastered the reels. I knew what was coming next, what fruits were coming, and I'd, and I'd, I'd show them and I'd win the money and it was almost like I got a kick out of doing that, you know? And it just stayed with me and um, stayed with me till uh, 2011 and that was my last bet. It was, you know, October the 5th, my mother's birthday, so it's um, it's nine years now. I've been um, I've been clean. You got into that Luton team at eighteen years of age. Within eighteen months, you're at Arsenal for a British record fee for a teenager. How did that move come about? It came about. I was training one. I was linked with a lot of clubs. I was linked with an awful lot of clubs. Liverpool. There was a couple of other clubs at the time, and I'd not heard anything about Arsenal. I was just reading papers. I was enjoying my. I'd read the paper some mornings, I'd be back page, you know, they're thinking about getting Hartson from Luton, young boy, blah, blah, blah. And then one one particular afternoon, I'd scored the previous week, and then after training one day, David Pleat said to me, John, I'd like to see you in my office. Uh, and I'm thinking, he's he, first thing I'm thinking, he's going to drop me. So my dad always said to me that when you go into a, the manager's office, sort of knock the door hard. All of a sudden, the manager goes, whoa, you know, it's like it's like a bit of authority, if you know what I mean. So I banged the office door. I'm only 19. And he said to me, John, he said, I've had a phone call this morning from uh, from George Graham and Ken Fryer at Arsenal. And um, he said, go home, put a suit on and out of a shave, put a tie on as well. He says, we, we're going to go, we're going to go to Highbury and, and meet uh, Mr. Graham. So it's Friday afternoon, so I didn't have a tie, so I go back to my... Um, I never wore a tie before. I didn't own a tie or a jacket. So I go back to my digs, and um, my landlady was there, and I said, look, can I, can I borrow Brian, Brian's tie? You know, her, her husband, and she went upstairs and got me a jacket. I put my shirt on, had a little quick freshen up. So next thing, we're off, we're off down the, in David Pleat's car. Didn't have an agent at the time. And I go into Highbury for the first time in my life. Um, Herbert Chapman, the statue's there. I go upstairs into George's office and he said, look, John, he said, I've been looking at you a long time. He said, if you sign for me today, he said, you'll play with the England centre forward on Saturday. He said, Kevin Campbell's turned his ankle. Alan Smith's got a problem. He said, and uh, he said, you'll play on Saturday with, with, with Ian Wright. 
sort of straight away it wasn't about money it, it wasn't about how much I'm getting I didn't have an agent so it's like almost like where's the contract and, and, I, and I signed immediately so next minute I go back to my digs and then I have to go up to Highbury on the Saturday and make my debut. I play for Arsenal. We we draw the game 1-1. Arsenal with a direct route again. Right. Still right. Simply superb. Big dunk got sent off and my big mate was in goal for uh, for Everton. Neville South on it was right. He scored the goal. So that was my debut and literally that's how it happened. And then you went on a sort of whirlwind journey, didn't you? Because you know, you've gone from being, as you say, in digs with uh, Luton, to into the Arsenal team, playing with Ian Wright. You get into the Cup Winners' Cup final that year. You score the equaliser in that big showpiece event. Did it sort of take you all by surprise? Or did it, was it something that really sort of you took in your stride and just thought, oh, well, this, is, this is just what my life's going to be like from now on? Yeah, I thought this is what it's like. And I was in a bubble. I was totally in a bubble. You know, I look back now and I think I played in two two European Cup fi- finals. I played in the Super Cup final for Arsenal as well against AC Milan, and then the Cup Winners Cup final. Played a lot of games in that Cup final and in that tournament. I remember going to um, Sampdoria in the semi final and we, we won. We we'd, we'd won at home at Highbury three two. We lost three two in Genoa at Sampdoria, and it went to a penalty shootout, and. Um, I scored my penalty in in the shootout, so now we get through to the final. We're in we're in the UEFA Cup final. Arsenal are the holders. They'd won it in '94. This was '95, and I uh, I start in the final, a European final. I'm 20 years of age, and um, we go one nil down. It's Schneider. We play in a uh, real Zaragoza. Gaspoye is playing for Zaragoza, and I get the equaliser. This is Parla. Now Mercer, and it's in for the equaliser. And it's John Hartson, I think, who's got it. And then David Seaman, obviously Naeem, wasn't it? And uh, David Seaman, I spoke to David about it many a times, and he, he just got caught. He was just on his heels. The ball almost just goes right under the crossbar, and he, he was just caught. I think most keepers, um, you know, they have a howler at some stage in their careers, and, and that, that, that was David's. Well, we're heading for a penalty shootout. Naeem, or are we? Can you believe what you've seen? Naeem! Seaman went back and back, but it's in, and Arsenal are beaten. I was getting ready to take my penalty because I know I would have took a penalty in the final, and it was almost seconds away from, you know, penalty kicks. So I'm taking a penalty in the final. Next thing, I'm in the dressing room, and we've lost. We've lost the cup, and I just could not believe it. I just felt our name was on the cup because we played some really good games. That we had a good side. Right, he was on fire. I think he scored in every round. I think leading up to the up, up to the final, and it just it just wasn't to be. So that was for us. I'm I'm, I'm going home on the plane from um, from France, uh, Parc de France, I think it was in one of the massive big stadiums over there, and. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to the European final. I'm, I'm only 20 years of age. I'm like, that's something to tell my grandkids about, you know, when I get older. That'll, that'll never go away, you know. I've just scored in the European final. I'm 20. So every now and again, I would think about it. But uh, as I said, Sam, I, it, I was just going with the flow. I was going with the flow. I was holding my own. I was playing. I was, And as I said, I, I was enjoying myself at the time, you know, living in London. I'd come up from Wales from a council estate all of a sudden I've got money I've got a bit of fame I'm, I'm 20 years of age and I'm living in Hertfordshire at a big £450,000 gaff in Brookmans Park you know I think I've never seen anything like this so you know um, at the time I was you know and, and I was ready for it I was ready for my next step After 53 games and 14 goals at Arsenal you left and went to West Ham United in 1997 but Wenger wanted you to stay didn't he? Arsene wanted me to stay and he wanted me to learn um, from two of the best. We'd signed Dennis Bergkamp from Inter Milan. Um, he was just a phenomenal, incredible player. Uh, and obviously we had Ian Wright as well, the, the fantastic goal scorer who actually broke the Arsenal goal scoring record while I was at Arsenal. So he wanted me to learn. You know, I was only 21. I'd had two years at Arsenal. I'd, I'd played a lot of games uh, under Wenger when he arrived. I played in his very first game at Blackburn. And I played in the, you know, the played at the highest level, the Champions League, uh, the year before. Uh, we played Borussia Mönchengladbach and, and and teams like that. And I played a lot of games in Europe. So this is the top level football. 
Did you enjoy working with him? I did. I did. I think the players got on board with Arsene Wenger, what, what his demands were. The training was totally different. Um, it was all timed and it was all measured on um, you would do a technical drill, you would do a, a hard sort of um, 8v8, and then you would warm down. It was all this stuff. Um, the food changed, um, the drinks we had to drink in between sessions and, and things like that. And and it, it was always a case of, um, I think the lads had the likes of Merce and Tony Adams and even Wrighty and the back four, Dixon, Winterburn, Boldy, these guys they tuned into what Arsene Wenger wanted and, and it benefited their careers absolutely massively. Them boys will tell you now, Sam, that Arsene Wenger put two or three years on their on their careers simply because of the way they started to, you know, listen to the, the, the sports science guys. And, and Arsene Wenger, he, he, you know, he, he changed it all. He was one of the first ones to come in and, and, and implement that. And then all of a sudden... Chelsea appointed a foreign coach, you know, Liverpool uh, appointed a foreign coach. I think everybody got on board. I think that's why Arsene Wenger deserves an awful lot of credit for for bringing that in, in into the Premier League at the time because of some of the stuff that he was doing. You know, people had never seen it before, the, the training sessions. Like, like, like what? What was the biggest thing that, that changed for you? The biggest thing that changed was warming up and warming down because our warm-up before used to be a circle. 15 lads around two in the middle keep the ball pass it around the two lads in the middle trying to win the ball back and then once you finish the session bang you're off you're getting quick change as quick as you can you're in the training ground you get a jacket potato bosh if you didn't go to the pub you went home that's what it was like when I first joined Arsenal and then Arsene Wenger came in nobody leaves without Arsene Wenger's permission we all have dinner together and then you put your knife and fork away and then Arsene Wenger says, right, lads, you can go. Before get, before training, we ran for about 15, 20 minutes just to get all the lactic acid out of your legs. It was like a small jog. And then once you would come back into the group, we were ready to go. But we had to get that lactic acid. We had to warm up that way. Everything was done with a watch. So you do seven minutes on a, on a, on a drill, a technical, which a technical means... It means like a, a passing drill or a, or a different type of crosses and finish. That's a technical before you then go into the the hard stuff where you get the heart heart monitor, you get the heart rate up and you're playing 8v8 and you go in and then you warm down. You go into a, a, a room, like a large room, we'd all form a circle. Arsene Wenger would be in the middle and he would just do all the stretching and he'd spend 45 minutes in that room. Well, that was that was the changes because two or three years prior to that, the lads were off, not warming down, not warming up, probably getting a few injuries where they didn't really need to. So the changes that he made in terms of that was, was huge. It was it was a huge turnover. All the lads were like, well, "What's going on? What's the... And all of a sudden, players started to feel better. They started to be feel sharper, fitter. And, you know, you look when Arsene Wenger was there, his teams were incredibly fit. Still to come on up front with John Hartson, he discusses the biggest regret of his career. I've gone to pick him up and he's sort of thrown a light punch at me which caught me in the hip and then I just lashed out. You're listening to Upfront with John Hartson on TalkSport. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. West Ham were the team that enticed you. You hit the ground running with a relegation-defying partnership with Paul Kitson. Why did that click? You hadn't played together before. You didn't even know each other, did you? No, we didn't <clears throat> Didn't know each other, but I think we were in similar situations, you know. Kits was chomping at the bit, ready to go. Wasn't getting games under Kevin Keegan at Newcastle. You had Shearer there, um, and he was sort of next man in, very similar to the way I was at Arsenal. You know, I was next man in. But I wanted to play. I wanted to play every game. I wasn't. I didn't want to wait on and be sub. I wanted to play. You train hard all week. You want to play on a weekend. That's that's what you do. That's the way I always felt. I can't understand these guys that go six months on the bench now and earn their money and don't play and blah blah blah. With myself, I was quite happy to go because I wanted to make an impact at West Ham. I'm 21. I've got Rush, Hughes, and Saunders ahead of me with the Welsh team. I want to play, so I get noticed for Wales, and I want to go up on and play for my country. The only way I'm going to do that is if I score goals for West Ham, because I wasn't in the Arsenal team. And Paul Kitson had a similar similar experience at Newcastle. He wanted to play games as well, so we both came to West Ham at the same time, both sort of roaring to go, um, want to make an impression on the football world and everything else. We get a chance at West Ham, and we like... We've just hit it off, Sam, and I, for whatever reason, we, we never particularly went out to the training ground and did any partnerships, any work together. If anything, we'd be in opposite teams because Harry would try and divide the teams, you know, the 8v8s and things like that. And he'd have different strikers and everything else. And at the time, we had Samasi Abu, we had Ian Dowie, we wanted two other strikers as well at the club, young lads coming through. So it was just a case of we didn't work on it, but it just clicked for whatever reason. It just clicked, and I think sometimes that that, that can happen. Movement in the centre. Kitchen's there, Hodgson's there. The equaliser for West Ham. John Hodgson. In September of 1998, you had an incident on the training ground with Eyal Berkovic, which was caught on camera mm -hmm. and ended up on the front pages of the newspaper. What happened? What happened was... Um, I was wrong. It was it was a poor decision that I made that day, and it's always it's always sort of followed me around. Really, you know the two hundred goals, you know this the whatever goals for West Ham, um, you know the, the the career achievements, you know the Player of the Year awards and all this stuff and playing in finals and representing my country and you know it it it's, it follows you around. I think and and I think sometimes. People want to just bring up the, the the bad things. I think bad news just makes headlines, and uh, I'm taking nothing away from from the incident. I regretted it. I shouldn't have done it. I was 21, and uh, you know, Isle Isle was a fantastic lad. Nothing personal, um, and it was John Moncur rolled the ball into me. Al Berkovich um, nicked it off me. I gave it away. My touch was poor. I give it away. He ran sort of 15, 20 yards. I've chased him back to try and win the ball, and I've and I've tackled him from behind. And as you can see on the pictures, I've gone to pick him up, and he's sort of thrown 
a light punch at me which caught me in the hip didn't hurt never felt it and then i just lashed out and as as you can see the pictures are there for everybody to see and i, and I don't know why you know I, I i was aggressive but obviously um i don't know why i did that reaction and, and it's the biggest regret of my life i should never have done it uh, i i i profusely um apologized and i got fined by the fa i got banned and i got a load of terrible publicity for it you know it was like it was unbelievable uh I was front page of every newspaper, you know, everywhere. I went to France to train with a, a gentleman called Tibius Derue. So I had to leave the country at one stage. It was that bad. And I brought a lot of shame on my family and everything else. My mum and dad down in Wales, you know, people knocking the door and saying, oh, it was John, like, and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, John's an angel as a kid, you know, he was, he was great. And um, it was just one of these things. But it, it's very regrettable. I've since been in touch with Isle. I've met up with him a few times, of course. He was ex-Celtic as well. Um, so, you know, we played... I was going to say, do you, do you have a coffee now together? Yeah, yeah, we played Israel a couple of years ago. Wales played Israel. And um, for whatever reason, Sam, I came out to the hotel one day. I was assistant manager to Chris Coleman. And uh, I came out to the hotel and decided just to go for a walk up the road in a little cafe on my own. The boys, I think, they had a lie-in that morning or something in the Welsh group. And... Um, I just decided to come out of the hotel and I walked around the corner to a cafe and Al Berkovich is there. <laughs> the next thing, a couple of cameramen turned up uh, and ph photographers. I'm like, this is weird. What's going on here? So to this day, I don't know what happened. Next thing, me and Ireland are having a bit of pasta together, a cup of tea. We're sitting there as if we've you know, been mates for 20 years and we live in the same country and everything else. But the cameras were quickly then and the snappers were there. And I think all that stuff then was all out in as headlines, you know, hearts and meets, and they brought it up again, which people will always bring it up. I'd like to put on record, which I have many times, is very regrettable. I shouldn't have reacted the way that I did. And, um, you know, it's always seems to have gone before me. Do you think it affected your form? Because after that, the statistics show a little bit of a drop-off. Yeah, I did. It did affect my form because the crowd turned a little bit as well and I'd put a bit of weight on. I don't know if I got a bit slack. I probably did, uh... You know, but West Ham at the time they they um, I think they were looking to go in a different direction. I think Harry might have felt I've had two great years out of John. He's been flying. He's scored goals. This incident now, I'm not too sure. Because uh, Sam, believe it or not, I'm quite a shy guy. I am really shy. I get emotional and I'm shy. And when I wasn't getting that adulation from the crowd, it probably affected me. Affected the way I was thinking, the way I felt, and things like this. And Harry probably felt, look, I bought him in for three point two. I've got an offer of 7.5 uh, from Wimbledon. And he probably thought, you know what? I I I'll get rid of John now because I've doubled my money on what I paid for him. And he went and got Di Canio. Sinclair's cross over Cunningham. Di Canio! Oh, I do not believe that! Uh, that is sensational! Scott Minto and, and uh, Mark Vivian Fowey. God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. And, you know, terrible what happened to him. Um, so Harry got three players on the back of selling me for £7.5 million. And uh, the West Ham fans don't like this when, when I say, well, Paolo, Paolo ended up a legend, but he would never have been at the club if I hadn't gone to Wimbledon. Uh, you went off to Wimbledon yeah. and... It, it was a huge amount of money, wasn't it? As you as you mm. mentioned, really, there was Wimbledon's record signing. You scored goals there, but it was a time that you, you sort of troubled by injury once again. Uh, I was around the club at the time, actually, mm. and it was also in the shadow of the spectre of this looming ownership change and, and, and a moment of transition for that football club, which had been very much etched into a small community in southwest London, moved over to Selhurst Park, where it was currently sharing a ground. And, and it was only going to get worse, obviously. We know what happened eventually. Did that affect the team? Did it affect the dressing room? Did it affect your performances? Um, well, first of all, the, the, the money was, was absolutely ludicrous. It was huge. You know, £7.5 million in 1999. You know, that's, that's over £100 million in today's money, if you, think, if you look at it that way. 
But when I first signed, they were they were ready to have a real go. Sam Haman, he was looking at bringing in other players, and Joe Kinnear was really, you know, excited and enthusiastic about. And Joe had won Man of the Year of the Year at one stage. Hadn't yeah, he? I think they finished so fifth, fifth or sixth, I think, in the Premier League. Wimbledon, you know, under the captaincy of Vinnie Jones, Dean Oldsworth, YZ, Fash, all, all that, all that lot. John Scales, they're good players. So at one stage you know he sold me the club in terms of we can have a go here John you know we're going to spend another 7 million on a top class centre half and and Joe Kinnear suffered a heart attack um, probably about 6 6 weeks into my um, into my career at Wimbledon did it affect the going down it, probably because the lads were a bit unsure I suppose when when Joe um, had to finish at Wimbledon and then um, Egil Olsen I think came into the club and I think the year year after or that particular year we we ended up getting relegated and I was on big money and um I think they were pretty quick to get rid of a lot of players then I think they 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 needed to make a drastic action and Ben Thatcher went to Spurs Neil Sullivan went to Spurs Chris Perry went to Spurs Carl Court went to Newcastle I went to Coventry for big money so almost overnight I think Gareth Ainsworth was sold on um, I'm not too sure one or two others maybe had to leave Jason Newell I think went to Charlton but a really good team but ultimately you know we got relegated After Coventry because it was just a brief spell there you went off to Celtic £6 million deal did you know what you were walking into and the expectations of what you were walking into and you mentioned the adulation that that, that you sort of missed when you weren't getting it at West Ham did you get it straight away as soon as you put on those green and white hoops? Well, I, I knew what, what a big club it was and I also knew how big Rangers were. Um, you know, two massively supported clubs around the world with, with unbelievable fan base all over the world. So I knew uh, the, the volume of the size of the club, but nobody can ever prepare you for that. It was two or 3,000 fans turned up on the day that I signed you know, and it was just like I was going in, I was partnering Chris Sutton, Henrik Larson, Chris Sutton, you know, Premier League winner, Golden Boot winner. So I'm at Celtic, we've got a great team, you know, we've got a fantastic manager and I, and I did ever so well in, under the circumstances because the year before I arrived there, they, they'd won the treble in the year 2000. Martin O'Neill's first year and Henrik and Chris had scored 66 goals between them. Early ball in, there goes Chris Sutton! From Sutton. So I've got all of a sudden try and break this partnership up. And luckily for me, Chris's professionalism and the respect that he had for myself, I'd played against him many a times against Blackburn, uh, for you know, Norwich early on, youngsters and everything else. And Chris respected my game and I think the general consensus of it was I think Martin obviously always realised that if he could get the three of us in the one team, then we'd be a lot stronger. So lucky for me. You know, otherwise that could have caused an awful lot of problems if Chris had gone in and said, no, 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 last year we won the treble, I want to stay up top with Henrik, he might have had to get rid of myself or, or change it around a little bit, I don't know. So it was partly down to Chris's um, ableness in, in, in allowing me to come into the team, really, but I had to score goals to stay in the team. Clean in for Chris Sutton, knocks it down for John did score goals as well didn't you and you scored a winning goal at Ibrox very shortly after joining what was going through your mind when you registered that goal in that famous old firm game well I scored nine against Rangers Sam and I also scored the winning goal in four consecutive games against Rangers in the in, in the derbies but the, but the so first I had a wonderful time the first happened. one is just unbelievable it's you know it's every child's dream in, in Scotland you grow up as a kid and you're a Celtic fan you, your mum and dad buy you that Celtic shirt and you want to score for Celtic, you want to play for Celtic, and then you want to score against their biggest rivals in an old firm derby. And I did it in four consecutive games, the winning goal. So I had the keys 
to to one half of the city at one stage. You know, <laughs> you, you you make yourself quite popular with the fans if you score in the big games. That's what you do. And I went on. And did you like that? Did you like being that guy who could walk around the city and be Mr. Celtic? Well, I was doing what I what I was doing. I, I was scoring goals. I was scoring goals, and that's what I always did. And I I, I happened to score in this particular game, and the, the biggest games. Some people would say it's the biggest derby in the world. You know, we'd ask Sunas and Gascoigne and McStay and Larson. I mean, no, this game is not for the faint-hearted. In 2006, you also scored the goal that settled the title. It was against Hearts. Talk me through it. It was on my birthday. It was April the 5th. It was Gordon Strachan's um, first season in charge. I'm playing with Magic Zaravski, the great uh, Polish striker. And we beat Hearts 1-0, and that clinched the title. Obviously, we'd won another 30 games prior to that. But that was the actual game that got us the three points where nobody else could catch us and we lifted the title after the game. Great celebrations. The fans stayed on for about an hour. Celtic Park was just rocking. The fans were throwing scarves and everything to you. And those are the days that, that I take away from playing at Celtic. Them, them winning moments. Because I never won. I never won at Luton. I never won at Arsenal. I never won at West Ham. I won plenty of games. But I didn't win any trophies at Wimbledon. And when I, came, when I went to Celtic, Sam, I became a winner. quite a engaging character you like to talk to people you like to socialize you like to be around people you're quite a sort of effervescent character were you always confident in your own ability do you ever have any moments sort of dark moments away from football when you were worried that it wasn't going to work out for you or that you weren't you may be going through a small mm. drought in front of goal because it, it, isn't, it isn't always perfect is it being a, a center mm. forward well, not not when I not when I played Sam. I always felt I was in a very privileged position, and uh, I was enjoying the moment. I was enjoying the training. I was enjoying the games. I was enjoying just being in and around football, the crowds, and going out on a Saturday to these great stadiums, and you know, trying to make an impact, <clears throat> trying to help my team and my managers and things like this. Listen, when I finished playing football, then you know, I'd I'd carried this sort of gambling addiction around with me, and. Um, you know, I I got I got testicular cancer that spread to my lungs and onto my brain. I spent six weeks in hospital, like two emergency brain operations, and uh, I had a divorce, which is absolutely you feel as if your heart got ripped out of my my chest and stamped all over. You know, that's how much a divorce takes out of you. I'm not somebody who's had this fantastic life. I've had problems. I I made mistakes. I, I've had issues happen to me. You know, with things like that. And towards, you know, sometimes at the, I never went and got treatment. I never went to a doctor. I never seeked help, really. But there's no doubt that I've had depression and I've had a bit of mental health, you know, issues. And there's no doubt about it because of what I've been through. You know, it's impossible not to, uh, you know, not, not to feel, you know, quite uh, down and things like that. And at times, you know, but I, I've always just tried to pick myself up, really. I've always tried to... Uh, and listen, that's not the way when you've got mental health. You've got to talk and... You got to seek help and get the right treatment and therapy and and everything else and so that's the way to deal with mental health. But myself, the most important thing in my life now is is my children and my health. And that's the most important thing. You know, I had a wonderful career, but if I don't do another gig in football, I'll be all right. You know what I mean? I've got a house that's paid for and I'm all right. I've got a few quid around me. I'm not a multi multi millionaire. I'll get work. I'll get something, and that's the way I am. So I'm a very normal humble guy from Swansea that, that's what I am who, who happened to have this unbelievable career I actually get a bit embarrassed when people want the picture and, and want an autograph and because I'm thinking well I'm, I'm just I'm just very very normal but I can't take away the fact that I did have this incredible career broke records played for some of the biggest clubs you know in in Britain can we talk a little bit about the cancer, because mm -hmm. in July 2009, shortly after your career, you, you picked up testicular cancer. It spread to your lungs and your brain, and it was it was severe. Let's not make any bones about it. I know from talking to you about it before in the past that mm -hmm. you don't really like talking about it, to be honest with you. It's not something that you want to concentrate on. In fact, I remember having a conversation with you um, in which you turned around and you said to me, oh, not 
can't, so we're not talking about that again. Because I was frightened of my cry, that's why. And <laughs> I'm going to try and answer this and be as strong as I can because it, it can make you very emotional, you know, when you talk well, about going back well, and cancer. And, and you know this already because <clears> we've <throat> spoke about it privately, but arguably you saved my life because I would never, mm. never have ardently and forthrightly challenged my doctors to keep checking me as much as they did eventually, and I eventually was diagnosed with testicular cancer three months after you. But if it hadn't have been for your highly publicized illness, I wouldn't have known about it. And I'd, a lot of people would have been in that situation, I think. A lot of people, I'm not brushing your ego here, I genuinely mm. thanking you for the awareness that you drew. I know that it was tough for you, and I know it was horrific for your family and, and, and people close to you. But if you can take any good out of it, mm. It was that people spoke about it. Yeah, well, any diagnosis of, of any illness is, um, is, a, is a lot quicker recovery period of time when you, when you can get it early. You know, you go in, you, you feel anything, you feel any lumps, you go straight away. You don't leave it four years like I did. So you allow it to grow, you allow it to spread, and it's imperative that you go to your GP and you demand to get um, an X-ray or a scan. Um, that's where my mistake was. Uh, but to be honest with you, I was fathering kids, I was scoring goals, I was training every day. I was, I was just unaware that a lump on your testicles could be a telltale sign of testicular cancer. I, I wasn't aware of that. I'm certainly aware now. Um, I know everything about cancer now over the years. You know, I've raised over a million pounds for the John Hartson Foundation. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, the, the lads in the charity do exceptionally well um, with the work that they're doing. So my message to people is do as I say... And not as I did, you know, copy what I say, go straight away, because it could save your life. It could save your life. And the amount of people that, Sam, it's just lovely words that you've just said to me there by thanking me, but you don't have to thank me. I was only doing what came natural to me. I was only putting it out there and, 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 and bringing a book out, a cancer story, to help others, you know, to help mums and dads and brothers and sisters deal with the loss of, of, of somebody in your family through cancer, through testicular cancer in particular. Um, and the amount of people that come up to me now and say to me exactly what you've just said. John, I listened to your story. John, I read your book. John, I watched your documentary. It was incredible. Um, it was hard-hitting. It was emotional. It was real. It was honest. And people go, do you know what, John? You saved my life. If I hadn't have listened to that radio piece that morning, I had a lump and I didn't go. But listening to your story, I went. You know, so that makes me feel very humble. And, and, and obviously, you know, the fact that I, I was able to help people in, in, in any type of way. So, but it was a terrible moment in anybody's life, you know. Um, and, and the problem that I had, Sam, I didn't just have testicular cancer, it had spread onto my lungs and into my brain. So, Immediately, um, um, you know, uh, two emergency brain operations where they've, they've dug two big holes in my head and everything else. And, but my wife, she don't mind a few scars, you know. She, she, you know, she calls me a hero, my wife, for the scars and all that stuff. So, you know, it was, it was very close at one stage, you know. I nearly lost my life. It was close, wasn't it? Mm. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to talk about. It was, mm. it was, it was really close to to the end for you. Mm -hmm. I it mean, was, yeah. Were you aware of it? Were you? I know you spent most of your time in a sort of induced coma. I wasn't aware of it, no. So, you know, it's hard. It is hard, and it's hard yeah. to think about, and it's hard, and, it, and people I don't think realise the effect that it has afterwards and the, the mental scar that it leaves you with. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, I didn't have anything like what you went through, but you, you don't stop thinking about it. It's with you all the time. Yeah, well, you know, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to have got through that experience obviously um and we're delighted that you did yeah and it's just you know it's um, it's it's difficult because you know i don't know but i've, I've tried on every radio show i think over the last 10 years it's just well, like, I, can, I can talk about anything else anything you know um but i think when it's i think when it's your life and and your family and your children that that's what gets you you know it gets you and i you know it's uh Absolutely, and that's a message I think we should carry. And uh, it's definitely one with a good cry. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm just a little bit disappointed that we're so socially distanced. <laughs> I can't give you a hug. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Savage hooks that in, it's forced in by John Hartson right at the end here. Let's change it up and talk a little bit about something a positive to finish. And, and uh, let's talk about Wales, because I bet you loved playing for Wales, didn't you? I mean, what was the feeling like when you first got a call up? Well, it was, it, people say to me, often say to me, we finished the conversation actually a lot, lot with Wales. And people say, what, what was the biggest achievement? Obviously beating cancer. I'm not beat cancer, by the way. My cancer could return tomorrow. So, you know, uh, I'm still alive. I'm healthy. I feel good. I recovered initially from my, my battle. So that's the biggest thing I've ever achieved. You, you know, I've been there with a big 10-inch needle just about to be drilled into my brain. And the, the doctor saying to me, the surgeon, John, can you just sign this, please? Because if you don't wake up, I don't want to be responsible for this. That's pressure when you've got to sign that form, you know. So... The biggest thing I did in football undoubtedly was represent my country at senior level. You can't go higher. You can't go higher in life than to represent your country where you're representing your heritage, you know, your grandfather, your father, your children, the great players, John Charles, Trevor Ford, Rush, Hughes. I had, I had pictures of these guys on my wall growing up, you know, on my bedroom wall as a kid. These guys were my idols, Man United... Mark Hughes, you know, they're massive 24-inch thighs stamping around, you know, backing into people. He was, he was my, you know, I loved Sparky. And uh, to go and take that number nine shirt off my idol, which was Ian Rush, and, and to wear it for 10 years with our front three was Giggs, Hearts and Bellamy. But playing for Wales was, I'm a Welsh speaker, I'm from Swansea, you know, I went to a Welsh-speaking school and I'm, 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 a, I'm very patriotic, I'm a proud Welshman, I love the rugby, I love going to Murrayfield and supporting the rugby boys, you know, in the Six Nations and all that. So anything to do with Wales, I, I just sort of wax lyrical over, to be honest with you, but uh, I was very, very proud, very, very proud to represent Wales. You've been listening to Upfront with John Hartson and me, Sam Matterface. And if you missed any of the show or just want to catch up on previous episodes from the series, you can listen on the TalkSport app via the Game Day podcast feed. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.